So last week, last week was the first in the message series I was doing, we're all in this together, about interdependence, about the fact that the very, very base of reality, there is relationship, that nothing exists in isolation, that everything ultimately can hold together. So over the next few weeks, starting with today, we're going to unpack that. We're going to pack what that means in this following fashion. First, in terms of concentric circles, we're going to take a look at the interdependent self. Then, community and interdependence. Finally, the world and interdependence. Finally, the realm of spirits. What are the implications for our spirituality if we believe in interdependence, if we believe that relationship exists at the heart of everything? Now, one of the cool things about interdependence is, frankly, it doesn't have to follow this kind of linear self, then community, then world, then spirit. Because the definition of interdependence is that everything is interdependent. Everything does exist in relationship with everything else. And so frankly, I could start in community and then go back to world and then go up to spirit and go into self. And the meaning would be the same. We're talking about interdependence. We're talking about multiple causative factors. We're not talking A, then B, then C, then D, one after the other, after the other, after the other in that linear fashion. We're talking A, then B, then back to A because B has changed the nature of A. And then we head to C and then maybe we get on down the line and we skip, you know, E altogether. We get to F. That's the kind of interdependent world we're talking about in which things exist in relationship. And so we could start anywhere with this week, but I'm going to start with the self because If we are going to realize the truth of interdependence, the truth of relationship, it will start from within our own lives. It will start from within our own consciousness, from our apprehension of the way things are and the way that we perceive them. We realize this, if we realize this, then we can grow into what the Buddhists call Buddha nature, what the Western traditions call the heart of God, what Ken Wilber, one of my favorite spiritual teachers who combines psychology and philosophy and religion, he calls this just basically whatever you want to call the source Unity consciousness, the idea of existing in relationship with everything, ultimately. We are all invited to grow in this way, and we start first with our own experience. And I believe that finally, fundamentally, we can't skip over that. If we want to grow into interdependence relationship with things, we cannot skip over ourselves. Remember that old Seinfeld episode where George, who's perpetually angry about everything, He doesn't get the apology he wants from someone in recovery and accuses him, you're a step skipper. (laughs) We can't skip the step of our own, of our own awakening, of our own apprehension of self growing into relationship with everything around it. I saw a really good example of this, of the cost of what happens when we speak the language of interdependence, of relating to all and bringing things back into harmonious enlightenment and relationship. I was at the Mind Body Spirit Expo with actually is where I met a few of you a couple of years back. And there was a fellow in the stall next to us. It's a great opportunity to reach spiritual seekers in our area. And there was a guy next to me who was selling, I don't know, somehow some sort of orthotics that aligned your soul with I I don't know. I was a little skeptical, but he seemed like he seemed like a good enough guy. And I believe that what he was selling was well intentioned. However, this is when the sort of thing was opening up. We hadn't quite started yet. And unfortunately, his credit card machine was not running correctly. His credit card machine was not working in the way it would have wanted. And you should have heard him on the phone with his supplier. F-bombs and all the worst language you can think of. And then a half hour later, this guy was talking about this product I will give you that you will buy from me will bring you into enlightenment and into alignment with all of reality. 
if it doesn't start in here, it doesn't start with who we are. It doesn't matter how much we preach and believe in universal love or in interdependence or in relationship with everything. We can spout off all these great things, but if we are cruel or mistreat the people closest to us, then we will be accused, as many religious people are, and understandably so, of hypocrisy. It starts with us first and foremost, so that's where we start this morning. We don't want our relationships to ring hollow. And so today we start with that analysis of that interdependent self, what that means. And actually the best words I've ever read about it, not words that, that I wrote. Some of you might know the book, A Brief History. I think it's a short history of nearly everything. Any of you know that book, A Short History of Nearly Everything? I am not a scientist. There's a lot of science I do not understand. And so when I find a really good science writer who can break things down in ways that even my humanities, liberal arts-based brain can make sense of them, I say this is someone who can really explain things in a good fashion. And so this is the way, and I'm going to read you the whole introduction, or most of the introduction, from Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything. He says, or he writes, Welcome and congratulations. I am delighted that you could make it. Getting here wasn't easy, I know. In fact, I suspect it was a little bit more difficult than you may realize. To begin with, for you to be here now... For you to be here now, trillions of drifting atoms had somehow to assemble in an intricate and intriguingly obliging manner to create you in the first place. It's an arrangement so specialized and particular that it has never been tried before and will only exist exactly this way this one time. Now why atoms take this trouble is a bit of a puzzle. Being you at the atomic level is not a gratifying experience. For all their devoted attention, your atoms don't actually care about you. Indeed, they don't even know that they are you. They don't even know that they are there. They are mindless particles after all and not even themselves alive. It is a slightly arresting notion that if you were to pick yourself apart with tweezers, one atom at a time, you would produce a mound of fine atomic dust, none of which had ever been alive, but all of which had once been you. And yet, somehow, somehow, for the period of your existence, they will answer to a single overarching impulse to keep you, you. See, identity is not a given. It's not a thing that we can say, here it is. Here it is, and we can grab hold of it. At the very basis of who we are, of the building blocks of our life, there is relationship relationship between all these trillions of things that somehow miraculously and truly this is a miracle einstein said you know either everything is or nothing is this is a, such a miraculous thing to behold that somehow all these things come together not even knowing themselves and still we can be we can become so you separate the parts and all you get is that fine atomic dust you put the parts together and somehow magically and wonderfully we are human and we are alive and part of this earth. At its very basis, our identity is a relationship. Nothing exists in isolation from anything else. Probably the religious tradition in the world, the religious, one world religious tradition that gets closest to this truth is Buddhism. Some of you might know about the Buddhist teaching of the five attributes, the idea that reality is at base a relationship, that what we call this self is an agglomeration of five different things. You can look this up if you want to find more about it on Wikipedia. It's really quite fascinating. 
they talk about five different things, the five aggregates that lead up to us having a self. Matter, feeling, perception, volition, and consciousness. Take any of those five out and we will not be alive. I love the fact that Buddhism, this tradition going back over 2,500 years, is really signaling that they knew about what Bill Bryson was talking about before our science caught up to it. It is amazing. But poets have also done that. Walt Whitman's Song of Myself, probably my favorite poem. My favorite poem gets down to this fact that the heart of everything is this relationship. He says, I celebrate myself and sing myself. And I got to tell you, that first line starts out pretty egocentric. It starts out with this, and I celebrate myself and I sing myself. But Walt Whitman knew a deeper truth. It's not just about him alone, because he goes on to say, For what I assume, you will assume. For every atom belonging to me, as good belongs to you. Interdependence. My tongue, every atom of my blood, formed from this soil, this air, born here of parents, born here of parents the same, and their parents the same as them. I, now 37 years old, in perfect health begin hoping to cease not until death. Yes, Walt Whitman wrote Leaves of Grass when he was 37 years old. To me, that's pretty humbling. And he continues on for a while, this poem that goes on and on and on and on and on. After a while, you're like, Uncle Walt, we get it, we get it. You're related to everything. But it's with this point. Because at the end, it's almost as if he says, the self that I am celebrating, the self that is built and connected because of its relationships with everything, this self that we celebrate, it contains so much. And almost as if he is answering a question that someone is reading, is saying, well, what aren't you? He says this at the end. Do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. We are large. We contain multitudes. A relationship of things at their very heart. And I think they were probably answering as well. Whitman was what his friend Emerson once said. And by the way, this is misquoted all the time. Most of you probably know this quote as consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. That's the wrong quote. Emerson had no problem with consistency. He said this foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. He was saying, yes, our lives contain multitudes and our identity is complex because it's built upon relationships. It is built upon the strength, not our own, not only our own. That is how we grow because we come out of a place and out of a people and out of a time and we contribute and we give back to a place and a people at a time and share our gifts and share our strengths. Now, right now in America, this idea of the complexity of our identity, of where we come from and where we are going, is pretty much of a hot topic right now. I'm sure by, by now, pretty much all of you have either seen or heard or read probably quite a lot about Senator Obama's speech going back about three weeks now about his relationship with Reverend Jeremiah Wright and trying to explain that and putting it into context, but also putting into context of a deeper understanding of what American identity, of what his identity really means. And all I could think about while he was speaking and really just blown away, and by the way, this is not an endorsement. I'm not allowed to do that. I don't want to do that. But I think we, whatever this campaign will yield, we have seen one of the great pieces of social and political oratory in the history of our nation. 
Because the things that he wants to invite us into are bigger than just him. And what he's talking about are the multitudes. The fact that each of us in any part of our life, we can look back and see standing in back of us invisibly perhaps the multitudes that helped make us who we are. Now, this has had a profound effect for, I know, quite a lot of people, this conversation about not just race, but culture and religion, about who we are and who we yearn to be as a people, as a nation. And a couple weeks after that, there was, I was reading the Boston Globe, and there was a woman who was writing, her name is Francie Latour, and her history, her background is African-American, and even before that, Haitian. And just to set the context here a little bit, she's married to a white man of Irish descent, and they have two kids, and of course they have a interracial, intercultural identity. And at first she was very skeptical when Senator Obama was talking because she said her first experience of race, her first experience of race was when she was five years old and wasn't even conscious really of that point of, you know, the difference between white and black. And she said when she was playing duck, duck, goose one day and many of her classmates didn't want to touch her head, she said, because of her woolly hair. This is her first consciousness of race. And so she had some skepticism about this idea that perhaps we could get past some of these categories, but she says she has some hope because of what her children might experience. She writes, Now, however, it has become increasingly clear that color labels are fast losing their usefulness. Our kids have Haitian, French, German, and Irish blood running through their veins. In any given season, our three-year-old can look Mayan or Polynesian or Native American or Alaskan. Or he could just look like a white kid with Mediterranean parents who tans really well. And more than that, this is the crux of the matter. More than that, they are going to have something neither my husband nor I had growing up. They are going to see people with different colors and accents in intimate family relationships, starting with their own parents. While I sit and fret and fuss about some future day when they will reject their black mother or their white father, they are already absorbing a sense of identity that is far more expansive than my own, or I felt the world offered me. What I know as only a hyphenated, improvised, multiracial identity, they will likely simply know as just their identity with all its complexity. Now this story I know is close to some of your hearts. It's close to who your family is. And if we expand just a little bit of it into intercultural, interethnic, interreligious, we see that America really is becoming this amazing stew. This amazing stew in which identity is not a simple thing just given us at our birthright and followed out for the rest of our lives. We see how our lives are changing. One of my closest friends in seminary was confronted by this. I remember she was taking the Intro to Systematic Theology course that everyone, everyone had to take. And she had a TA in the class. It was a large class. She had a TA who, well, let's say they came out of the Reverend Jeremiah Wright School of understanding what black identity is. Sort of a severe kind of thing. Sort of you is or you ain't. You know, you are or you aren't. And this TA, this woman I knew, this good friend of mine, is biracial. Black dad, white mom. And they were writing their statement of their personal theology. And she said part of her statement of her personal theology was that her identity wasn't just a thing given her at birth. And the TA wrote in big red letters on the side, well, which one are you? Black or white? 
black or white? Who do you identify with? And she wrote back. Actually, she said, let's get together and talk about this. She said, neither. She said, my identity is not either or. It is both and. Not either or, but both and. She was saying in her own way, I am large. I contain multitudes and will not exist in boxes that have been pre-established. This is kind of the most healthy self-identity any of us can have. This whole self, which says it's not a single thing, saying this is who we are absolutely and it's unchanging and it never, never alters, but instead it incorporates. The healthy self is always having an opportunity to bring together what might seem different. It's always telling a story of learning to incorporate and expand and grow and grow that circle grow that circle of hope into which all of us can grow. Now, how is this done? How do we build upon our different identities? How do we expand so that we can say in a healthy way, we are large, we contain multitudes, and not just be frazzled by this? Well, there's a really beautiful psalm that unfortunately, it's Psalm 139, has sort of been taken over by the anti-abortion folks in the last few years, by the anti-choice folks. But I really think it gets to the heart of how we can piece together different parts of identity and be a whole person says for you created my inmost being you knit me together in my mother's womb i praise you because i am fearfully and wonderfully made fearfully and wonderfully made knit together now, this fearfully part, I remember when I realized this, actually in meditation about five, six years ago, and I was at that place of very deep meditation in which I was feeling sort of those boundaries between self and world dissolve. And I said, this isn't a good thing, because I'm disappearing. I mean, it was really peaceful. It's sort of like I got right up to the brink and said, I don't want that. I want to remain me. I want to remain who I am. You know, that's called attachment. <laughs> it's holding on. Here I was at this great opportunity to experience this you know, just taste of unity consciousness. And I experienced part of that fearfulness of seeing the identity that extended into something else. Now, the other side of that is the wonderfully made as well, too. Not just the fearfully, but the wonderfully made. Because we recognize the grace, the magic, the absolute miracle that somehow, going back to what Bill Bryson said, we are here. Somehow this universe put it together in such a way that we have life. And so it brings up this question. Walt Whitman, perhaps it sounds really great. I am large. I contain multitudes. How will this get me through the night? How will this get me through the day? How will it answer the fact that not just can we be large and contain multitudes, but how can we be grounded? How can we be grounded in something larger than ourselves so that we can feel this connection, not just understand it, but actually feel it? And I think it goes back to that image from the psalm of being knit together, that we are always knitting ourselves together through this life, always piecing together who we are. The opposite of this, and I guess they talked about that a former president was an expert at compartmentalization. That you put one part over here and one part over there and one part over there and never any of them shall meet. Now, in some ways, that really is effective in getting through the day and getting business done. But I don't think it's what and who we are called to if we're going to be whole, full, healthy people. And this comes back to 
our core value that probably, if you've been here before, you hear me speak about more than any other at Wellsprings. We are knit together by a regular practice of engaging in meditation, in yoga, in prayer. Regular spiritual practice helps us knit ourselves together in wonderful ways. And I felt a great example of this in my own life this past week. I wrote, even early than it was due, my last check for my loans at graduate school. Woo! <laughs> Some of you have been through that path. You know what that's like. You know what a relief it is. Now, the idea that I would pay off a loan early, it's not who I was four or five years ago. I very often had this practice. Well, it was more a compulsion than it was a practice. It certainly was a neurotic part of myself. I used to play this little game with my, um, with my bills called hide and no seek. <laughs> Not intentionally, just sort of hide and no seek. I would sort of put them to the side and you know, then I'd put a book on top of it and then I'd put a magazine on top of it and then I'd put some other new bills on top of it and pretty soon I'd have a nice pile there. And oh, I hate piles. They scare me. And yet I seem so attracted to them. See, that's kind of the way I used to live my life in a lot of ways. Not really facing things piece by piece, moment by moment. And it was about four or five years ago that I got serious about spiritual practice, about daily meditation and daily prayer. And at its base, regardless of what type you engage in, regardless meditation, prayer, yoga, journaling, dream work, regardless of what it is for you, what spiritual practice really does is it helps us open up the back channels. It helps us stay connected to the stuff that is there. Face what is there. Understand what is there. Accept what is there. And deal with it and change from that place. Now, in terms of my own path, in terms of my own path and awakening these last few years, the serenity prayer is deeply close to my heart. But that is just a start. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, saying that is wonderful, but if I'd say that, my prayer's done for the day, I can move on. But that's not the way that it goes. Understanding the difference between those two things, what we can control and what we cannot, and putting our hands in our hearts to really, really focus on those things, that is the work of a spiritual practice day in and day out. The wisdom to know the difference, that is where the growth really comes from. And over time... And over time, what spiritual practice has equipped me to do is to make the connections. Make the connections of the multitudes within myself and not have them be compartmentalized. Not have one piece over there in that pile and one piece over there in that pile and one piece over there in that project. And then there's the self that watches, and sometimes my wife will talk about that and leave the room also at the same time, the self that watches the Yankees and gets annoyed when they don't win. The idea is that all these different parts of the self might be drawn together, knit together into a whole. And so what spiritual practice helps us do over time is make the connections, recognize those sources of anxiety, recognize the things that we fear the most. And on the positive side, it helps us recognize the tugs of the spirit, the things that keep coming up over and over and over again, the hidden sources of wholeness that maybe we fear we do not have the resources to be able to enter. But when we face these things regularly, day after day, when we hear the call of the Spirit, we recognize that it starts with the small thing. 
And so rather than hide and no seek, my life now very often is more a matter of come out, come out wherever you are. Wherever it is hiding. Wherever that bill might be. I'm not perfect on this yet. I don't hold myself up as a paragon. But still from where I was years ago, from where I was in terms of you know, paying those loan bills late and over $10,000 in credit card debts and a car service, I have no more personal debt today and I cannot tell you how liberating that feels. I cannot tell you how liberating that feels. So that's just one of the fruits of it. That's just one of the fruits for me. But I want to ask you today, ask this question of you, what is the state of your knitting? What is the state of your knitting? Where are you? Are you a collection of projects, of sort of just different persona? I'm not going to ask you to answer this right now. I'm not going to call on you. But you know the answer. Is there a piece of you over here and a piece of you over there and a piece of you way, way, way back in the past that you're just sort of afraid or don't want to touch? Well, I don't think that's what's destined for any of us. I don't think that's what's invited for any of us. And it's certainly not what interdependence teaches us. What it teaches is that we can open regularly. We can see regularly who we are, all that we are. All that we are. Even... Even the painful parts. Even the stuff that is difficult to recognize. One of the things that I love that Senator Obama did in his speech on identity was he quoted from William Faulkner. You've heard this one before, I hope. The past is never dead. The past isn't even past. The past is never dead. The past isn't even past. It doesn't mean it has to hold sway over us, but it's kind of like that old ragu commercial. It's in there. It's in there. It's in here. It's in all of us. Everything we've experienced. There is nothing lost even if we submerge it, put it away. And with all, all great reverence due to the amazing, amazing Negro League pitcher Satchel Paige, he was absolutely wrong when he said, don't turn around, something might be gaining on you. Chances are, if you are needing to be so facing straightforward that you are afraid of what's in back of you, it's already got you in its clutches. Turn around and learn to face it. Now, this doesn't mean we have to act on the old stuff. Progress and evolution is possible, and indeed, I believe it is the very nature of this life that we are invited into. In my recent book that I published about the experiences of young adult men, there was one story that really, really came home for me about learning to deal with the past that was painful. It's a friend of mine named Scott. And he actually was the oldest guy. I think he was 40 when he wrote for the collection. And he describes himself in this way. Gay, left-wing, educated, privileged in his position as a minister. So far left-wing, in fact, that he can't even belong to the Democratic Party. He's now getting a PhD in the history of science and religion at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, one of the most elite and most liberal academic places in the entire world. But he doesn't come from that kind of place because he describes his dad as a Republican redneck, beer, uh, deer hunting, beer drinking, country music listening, blue collar bear of a man. And when I think of Scott's story, although he didn't allude to it in his writing, I think of that beautiful and very, very sad Beatles tune, She's Leaving Home. Remember that from Sgt. Pepper's? 
This idea that she's leaving home and leaving everything behind. And that's kind of what I think Scott had to deal with and do when he left home and went away to college. And the story that he writes about, it's called The Ties That Bind. And he's recognizing that as a sophomore, as a sophomore in college, when he was going to be a food service manager, he never learned how to tie a tie because it was just one more thing, one more place of dislocation and disconnection between and father his father and himself. One more way in which his father was an entirely different man than he was, and there was this huge chasm between them. But as he starts to enter his 30s and approach his 40th birthday, and this is what he writes about in the essay, he sees that perhaps they are closer, he and his father, more interdependent than he might have managed. He sees this one day in the mirror when, much to his chagrin, he really sees that in his beard and in his back hair, He really looks so much like his dad. He sees it in the fact that he has his dad's fierce and protective temper for those things and those people that he loves. And he sees one day that all of his preset buttons on his radio, all but one, are set to country music stations, and he plays the fiddle and goes two-stepping every single Monday night. That relationship that was so damaged years back, now in fact has connection. And it goes both ways. He got a message one day from his dad who was saying, and this is again, this is the deer hunting, beer drinking, redneck kind of guy, that Scott had introduced his dad to this sort of boutique coffee house. And he wanted to call Scott and let him know how much he loved the herbal tea that he had recommended for him. This is what interconnection means. That we can grow and we can change. And we can love each other even in spite of our differences. And through that love, we can bridge that gap. We can even look back on some of the most difficult parts of our past and see, and see that even there, there can be so much connection. See, because finally what interdependence means in terms of the self, in terms of who we are, is that creation is not done with us yet. We are part of that creation. Part of my issue with more traditional forms of religion is they want to talk about creation as if it was something kind of like the beginning of Star Wars long, long ago and far, far away. Something that happened once and only. But that's not the way creation is. It's not what interdependence teaches us. Interdependence says that we are the very act of creation itself. That when we sing ourselves and knit ourselves together, that we know creation is not done and not done with us yet. And so it leads us out toward what we're going to be talking about next week. This question of that maybe we feel at our most lonely, are we alone in the universe? Are we alone here just as a self? Well, I'd encourage you to look to your left and look to your right, and you will get your answer. We are not alone here in the universe. Perhaps the universe chooses to make itself less lonely through our being. Now, does the universe really choose? I don't know. But it's the best words I have for a place where words really can't go. Through our being, the universe is not a lonely place. Creation is in us, calling us forward. Not long ago and far away, but here, right now within us 
and between us and beyond us. Amen, and may you live in blessing.